Well, good morning to everyone here uh, in person, those watching online, listening at a different time. Welcome. Glad that you are here. Glad to be able to spend this time together. We get to come to God's Word, and in it we see God reveal to us His character, His worth, His, His works, His ways, and it's all good for us. Good for us. Even the parts that are, that are hard, and they sting, and they're surgical. It's still yet for our good. We come to one of those places here uh, this morning in Exodus chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus 17. We're going to consider verses 1 through 7 this morning. Words should be on the screen as well. Exodus 17, starting in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's take a moment to pray. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you care for us in very profound ways, that you reveal to us your character and your worth through your word and that you do so to drive us to you, in whom we find the giver of all grace. I pray that that would be the case for us this day as we come to this text. So be with the preaching, the hearing, the receiving, the believing. This is your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ever wonder what would happen to you if you were wandering the desert and dying of thirst? Sitting around on a Tuesday afternoon wondering that? No? Well, first your body would hold on to as much water as it could, causing your kidneys to tighten up, your body to sweat less, and your temperature to rise. Then the next thing that would happen would be your blood flow would dramatically slow down, causing you to have an increasing dizziness or even faint. Then also, your skin would begin to shrivel up. That's fun. At this point, your internal organs would begin malfunctioning and shutting down, which will ultimately be the thing that kills you. And oh yeah, by the way, through this whole process, uh, you would be getting more and more delirious. Gnarly, huh? Yeah, unbelief works that way too. Let's say that again. Unbelief. In our hearts, works 
just like that, spiritually speaking. My hope this morning as we consider this text, our, our passage, as we see this scene, an intensifying of the, of the grumbling and the unbelief in the people of God, and yes, the overwhelming grace of God on display, that, that as we would take that in, we would see the danger of unbelief correctly, rightly, freshly. That we would see the danger of unbelief, unbelief residing in our own hearts, that we would see it rightly. And that seeing the danger of unbelief, that it in turn would propel our hearts to greater dependence on the God of all grace. That's the aim for us this morning. So we wrestle with this passage, this scene, is that we would see the danger of unbelief and that that sight would propel our hearts to greater dependence on the God of all grace. So this incredible moment of water from the rock reveals to us those two incredible truths. And that sort of will form our thoughts, our structure, if you will, this morning. First is the water from the rock moment here shows us the clear and present danger of unbelief. The clear and present danger of unbelief. And then secondly, the water from the rock shows us the freely given and thirst-quenching provision of grace. And it's not just for this scene, but it's the story of all of history. It's the story of our own personal lives even right now. There is a clear and present danger of unbelief residing in all of us. And yet there is this overwhelming, freely given, thirst-quenching provision of grace from the God of all grace. This is good news. It's surgical news. Heart news. It's hard news. But it is good news. It is indeed good news for us this day. So let's dive in together into this pool of good news. And let's consider some uncomfortable things and then cling ever so tightly to this most gracious and glorious thing that God has done. First, the clear and present danger of unbelief. I'm going to state it this way and then we'll keep coming back to it. Unbelief is doubting God can or cares. If you want a simple definition of unbelief, it is doubting that God can or that God cares. Both are at play. Both attack His ability and His willingness. That's what unbelief does. It doubts that God is able and it doubts that God is willing. That thing that resides and lurks and rattles around in your heart, in your lungs, is doubting that God can and cares. And therefore, it is always a clear and present danger. What do I mean by that? Well, a clear and present danger is a legal designation, though it's not used nearly as much as it once was, basically stating that a risk or threat to the safety or other public interests is indeed serious and imminent and requires immediate action. To have a clear and present danger to enact our sort of our government into action to protect us. It is a risk or threat that is serious and imminent. 
And it's not just danger, it's catastrophic danger that requires immediate response to neutralize it. So for something to have a clear and present danger, it is very real, very serious, very catastrophic, and we better stop what we're doing and deal with it now. A clear and present danger has two independent conditions that come with it. First is a speech or a form of communication that states a substantive evil will follow. And then this evil that follows is very real, very serious, very imminent, near, soon. Unbelief is just that. It is a catastrophic danger for the people of God. It shows up in speech and in subsequent actions. Since the singing of salvation of the Lord in Exodus chapter 15, we have been on a downward spiral of grumbling and quarreling. So they were singing. Moses had us singing, had a great song, and everybody was singing along. But how quickly Monday morning hit in the desert. Grumbling and quarreling became the sound. And it's intensified as it has increased. Let's see some of the intensification of it. Verse 2, if you would look. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? We are now introduced to the word quarrel. It's been grumbling. And, and we've defined grumble as, uh, at its base level, it is rebellion against God. It's doubting Him in every way. Quarreling is like a more intense version of that. It comes with a lot more teeth and bite and anger and animosity and, and distrust and frustration and blaming. It, it comes with all of the, the gnarliness and the nastiness of it. So it's not just upset about something It's angry and sinful in its expression of being upset about something. Next verse, verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The anxious intensity that comes with thirst. There's no water at all. And this isn't like the first place that they got to that had water. It was just bitter. There's no water. There's no prospect of water. There's no perceivable hope of water. And they grumble with even greater intensity. And they even say, all the more. Like, you brought us up out of here. Not just us, but also our kids and our livestock to kill us with thirst. Impugning motives on Moses and his failed leadership from their perspective. So it's just ratcheting up. Look at verse 4. So Moses then cries to the Lord. He says, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Moses is not speaking in hyperbole here. He's not exaggerating like we can kind of do sometimes. We can exaggerate what we're grumbling about. 
No, Moses is literally like, they're going to kill me with stones. There's no hyperbole. And then verse 7. And Moses speaking, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And it's that last line that is even more intensified than their grumbling in the previous episodes that we've considered. Their unbelief speech is coming out as, is Yahweh really with us? And you might be saying to yourself, are you, are you kidding me? I mean, we had all of the plagues that displayed that Yahweh is with them. We had this radical rescue at the Red Sea displaying Yahweh is with them. We have the water made sweet. We had all of this quail show up at night and all of this bread show up in the morning and it's feeding us. And they still say, is Yahweh even with us? Doubting? God can or cares? Do you feel how dangerous unbelief is? I hope that you do. And it leads to subsequent catastrophic evils. Spoiler alert, this particular generation of people do not get to go into the land that was promised where God's people would dwell. No, instead we find idolatry, death in the wilderness. They don't reach the promised land. Sobering. But also illuminating to the very clear and present danger of unbelief. And friends, unbelief is always the threat for you and me. There are serious Issues and challenges in our world, our culture, the way that our society lives out its values. But those things are not a greater threat on you than the unbelief that resides in your heart. This is always the clear and present danger we face every day. The Apostle Paul warns a church about the clear and present danger of unbelief in 1 Corinthians 10. We referred to it a couple of weeks ago because Paul brings in the very incidents that we're considering right now. We're going to go right back to 1 Corinthians 10. I want to read carefully 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Speaking to a church that was struggling with all sorts of distractions and divisions and and doubt that was having a profound impact on them. Paul is pressing in the Old Testament here in Exodus and, 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 and launching it and landing it into their very lives in the New Testament and saying, look 
here at the danger of unbelief. The very next verse is verse 6. Paul says these things. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul defines unbelief as evil. How about that surgical incision into our hearts? It's tough. It's heavy. It's weighty. I get it. And the impact of the stories that we're considering here in Exodus are profound when we see the New Testament interpret and apply them. It impacts the manner in which we take this seriously. And that's Paul's concern, a serious concern for the church he was writing to. Therefore, it's a constant concern for the church always. The danger of unbelief is real. And it's lurking inside. And so maybe you're sitting there and you're wondering, like like I would be wondering, how then do we fight this unbelief? How do I fight then the unbelief that lurks within, rattles around like, like, uh, like lungs filled with some water? Like, what do we do? How do we fight that? Well, I'll simply state it by, first of all, majoring on resting and rejoicing and relying on God. You fight unbelief by, by filling your head and your heart with more of God. Now, there are many things in life where the the expression less is more is pretty spot on. Like, the less of social media, the more peace in your soul. Like, that's a truism. You can apply that. (laughs) A less is indeed more there. But here, that's not, it doesn't work. It doesn't fly. The answer to unbelief or fighting unbelief isn't less but actually more. More is more. We need more of God. We need more of our heads and our hearts soaked with that goodness that we see in the pages of Scripture. So you fight unbelief with more of God. So follow with me here on this. This is hugely important and maybe even like illuminating for you and maybe your struggle, whatever that might be, with the issue of unbelief lurking underneath everything. Unbelief is doubting that God can or cares. Okay? That makes, an, that makes unbelief, its very nature, its very essence, an assault on and against the very character of God. Unbelief says God can't, and he doesn't care. Therefore, it is an assault on him, his character and his ways. It is to say, God is not able or faithful. That's what unbelief is seeking to convince you, that God is not able or faithful. And therefore, unbelief, doubting that God can or cares, that he's not able or faithful, unbelief then is the root under all of your sin. All of it. It is the root under it all. So to fight the root of unbelief 
You have to fight it all the way down at the level of the roots in your heart. Picture it this way. Whatever fruit of sin is evident in your life is being sourced by some sort of root system. You can't just pluck off the fruit and, and then it just doesn't ever grow back. Oh, that's all you have to do is just pluck off the fruit and now you're good to go. No, there's a root system bringing all of the needed nutrients for that sin fruit to grow. So you have to dig down to the roots and attack them there. And unbelief is underneath all our sin. So how do we do that? First, first way to fight unbelief is to flood your heart with the truth of God. Flood the field of your heart. Where we used to live was in this central valley of California. And they would flood the fields in order to grow, whether it was rice or whatever, and other stone fruits, they would flood the fields. It wasn't a slow drip line like you would do maybe for your garden. They would flood them, and you would be driving along, and it almost looked like glass across this flat surface, but the, but the ground was flooded purposefully, strategically, carefully, but flooded. Flood your heart with the truth of God as it is revealed in His Word. Now, God has graciously given us creation that displays His existence and, and His glory. Creation, as Psalm 19 would say, is, is screaming forth, declaring forth His glory. Creation, you look around and it says there's a God and He's awesome. And your conscience says that there's a God who made you and He's good, He's upright, He's just. Because you have this like moral thing that no matter how hard you try to get rid of or suppress it, it still tells you what's good and what's not good. Creation and conscience are important in that it helps us understand there is a God that we have to give an account to. But it's His Word that reveals to us with great specificity of His character and worth what kind of God He is. And He is a 4G God. I wish I could think of a 5G because we live in a 5G world now. But anyway, the 4Gs that Scripture is revealing to you about God. First, His goodness. His goodness. God is good. It's revealed to us in Scripture that His character, His worth, it's good. Secondly, His greatness. That God is great. And yes, He is majestic in splendor and wonder and awesomeness, but He's also great in His rule, in His reign, in His justice. He's great. Scripture reveals to us that He is gracious. He's going to tell Moses here toward the end of the book, and I can't wait to get to, get to this portion, that He is 
gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The God who is good and great is also gracious. And the fourth G is that He is glorious. Glory. That is the the culminating everything of His attributes. It's just this word glory. God's word reveals this to us with great detail over its pages. Flood your heart with more of that. How do you fight unbelief? You flood your heart with the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the grace of God, the glory of God. You set your affections and your thoughts, your very life on knowing these things. That is how you fight unbelief. Second way that you fight unbelief is that you major your heart on knowing the faithfulness of God to His promises, purposes, and people. It's like zooming in, intense focus on seeing in the pages of Scripture how God remains faithful to His promises, His purposes, and His people. If unbelief is an assault, an attack on the faithfulness of God, then fighting that, that was weird, fighting that, I was like, wait, what? (laughs) I didn't hear the house music come on. That was interesting. Anyway, um, sorry, a light went off if that was not visible on our live stream. Sorry. And I'm too much like a squirrel. squirrel. Um, Shame on me. Sorry about that. Major your heart on knowing the faithfulness of God to His promises, purposes, and people. If unbelief is an assault on the faithfulness of God, then you, like a college student picking a major and not switching it 17 times before graduating, you pick that major and you study it. You dig deep into that. You major on seeing in the pages of Scripture the unfolding of God's faithfulness in time, space, and history. He doesn't back away. From his promises, his purposes, and his people. How do you fight unbelief? You flood your heart with the goodness, greatness, grace, and glory of God, and you major your heart on knowing the faithfulness of God to his promises, purposes, and people. And then, thirdly, how do you fight unbelief? You rehearse and deepen your grasp of how the truth of God, his goodness, grace, greatness, and glory, and the faithfulness of God as on display in the pages of Scripture, are on the brightest display in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You feel the, how this is a, getting even more acute focus? Flood your heart with this big scope. God is good. He is great. He is gracious and He is glorious. See with even more specific focus on His faithfulness to His promises and his purposes, and his people. And zoom in with great attention to detail, rehearsing to your heart again and again and again how all of the truth of God and all of his faithfulness reach a culmination in the person and work of Jesus Christ. How you fight unbelief. How you fight it. It will be with you until your faith moves to sight. So there will not be a day in which you don't need to wake up 
with this urgent, pressing desire and longing to know your God. Because of the danger of unbelief, we are to be propelled all the more to a daily deepening dependence on the God of all grace. And when we do that, we find that this God does something most incredible. He provides us His grace. The freely giving, thirst-quenching provision of grace. Y'all, they drank water from the rock. I, I, I know, it seems so far removed from us in our day, our age, it's hard to associate to that and, and to, to filter that into our heads and our hearts, what that would mean, what that would look like. I get it. They, they had no water, no prospects of water. They were quarreling and they were grumbling and they were wanting to kill Moses. And they drank to their full. Most incredibly, God provides abundantly, miraculously, and graciously. Look at 5 and 6 of our Exodus 17 passage. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Can you imagine that? Leaders of those who are trying to kill him. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. That made water not drinkable. Now it's going to make something that's not watered, water. And go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Here's just a few notes. First of all, Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. It's the same place that Moses went and had an experience with God in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. It's the same place that we're going to be stationed at for quite a while in the rest of our book. Pretty special place. And here at this place, we see God provide yet again for his people. In front of witnesses, I mean, the very people who were threatening Moses, God brings forth water for well over a million people and their kids and their livestock. And this provision of water is freely given. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They didn't have a merit badge to get this water in fact, they deserve the complete opposite. They deserve to die in their thirst in the desert. And yet it was freely given to them. And it was thirst quenching. What a picture of grace. An undeserving, unbelieving, rebellious people drank freely from a rock when they were dying of thirst. If you want a picture of a believer, of a Christian, there it is. Once undeserving, unbelieving, rebellious person drinking freely from a rock while dying of thirst. I mean, that's exactly what Paul does. He attributes this to Christ. Back to our first Corinthians passage in chapter 10, verse 4. All drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The same God who 
freely gave a thirst-quenching water to a wayward, broken, sinful, unbelieving people, did so to the full. They lacked nothing. It's the same God who does that in our hearts, in our lives, right now, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He comes bursting forth into our calloused over hearts by the power of the Spirit, bringing this life-giving water to our dead, dried-up hearts and souls. That's the nature of grace. And like the old hymn that we sang, grace greater than all our sin. All. Not some. Not most. Not much. All. Now, some of you may be sitting here. And you're conflicted. Maybe you're watching, listening. Because you know deep down in you the nature of unbelief that rattles around in your hearts and shows up in your thoughts and shows up in your speech and shows up in the things that you do or the things that you bring into your life. And you know the guilt and you know the shame, you know the regret, you know the pain, the angst, you know that deep down you do desire those things. On top of it all, you feel that battle that wages in you and you feel like you can't measure up, that you're worthless, that you're a failure, that you live in nothing but foibles and flubs and that there's no more grace for you. You might feel that way. And you might be thinking this is too good to be true. As you flood your heart and as you major on the faithfulness of God and as you rehearse to yourself the way that it is most incredibly on display, you will find that God's Word consistently calls out to people who feel exactly that way. I love Isaiah 55, verse 1, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. God calling forth to a wayward people on the back end of our Old Testament. Not in an exodus, but in an exile. Same rebellious unbelief has called catastrophic danger and, and calamity to the people of God. The land that they entered into and pro that was promised to them, they were lost and they were exiled away. And there he calls out to them, Come to me, you who have no money. You have nothing of yourself. You have nothing but regret and shame and pain. Come and not get squashed down under the heavy boot of my justice. No, come and drink and live. And come and drink and live.
the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus is the compelling call to come and with no money of your own, buy and drink a water you could never gain on your own, a water that will quench you forever. And so, I say to all of us, the compelling call of this freely given, thirst-quenching provision of grace is a call to turn from the waywardness of our life brought on by our unbelief. A call to taste and see that the Lord is good. A call to drink and be satisfied. A call to no longer hunger, hunger and thirst because God has richly and freely and most graciously and miraculously provided you living water from the rock that is Christ. So, let us then battle the unbelief that rattles in our hearts. Let's not stop hydrating. Some of you have apps that tell you to drink your water. So when you're drinking your water, maybe that will trigger in your mind, let's not stop hydrating our hearts with the grace of God provided to us richly and freely and thirst-quenchingly in Christ, our rock. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would do this in us especially for those of us who are here this morning or watching online who are struggling under the slog of shame and failure and not living up. God, I pray that you would press upon our hearts the overwhelming nature of your grace, the overwhelming provision of that grace for all of our sin, that it is indeed greater than our sin, that we would see rightly that what lurks in our hearts is dangerous, it's unbelief, and that we would combat that with a resolve that is empowered by your Spirit to flood our hearts and to major our heads and to rehearse to our lives who you are and what you've done and why that is enough. And may that enable us and equip us then to live as if you really are the God who is indeed with us, the God who does and will always do. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Next week is the first Sunday of October, 2028, because it feels like this year has been eight years. Anyway, which means next week is Communion Sunday, an opportunity for us to taste and see that the Lord is good. For those who know that you won't be in attendance next week or know that you prefer, if you're watching online, to prefer that for you, yourself, or your family. You wish to have elders swing by and supply you with communion supplies to join us in that. Please reach out to us in the week ahead. We'll be sure that an elder will do that. You can reach us at elders at trinitynh.org and we will hopefully act swiftly and accordingly to connect with you in the week ahead. All right, that said, let's stand for our benediction. One that I use often, I think I even used it last week. It's hard to move off of it because it's 
so good to go with these words. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.